Okay, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Philip Munoz. I'm the director of the Constitutional Studies Program, and it, it's uh, my pleasure to uh, welcome you to today's lecture. Um, the Constitutional Studies Program, as I think you know, we have a, a PhD subfield and an undergraduate minor. Uh, the minor focuses on uh, classic and contemporary questions related to law and justice, American constitutionalism, uh, ideas of constitutionalism, comparative constitutionalism, and so we'd uh, love to have you if you're interested. Uh, particularly interested uh, and excited for our speaker today uh, who um, is speaking on his new book, but I just wanted to call your attention to his classic book, The Rhetorical Presidency. This is actually my version from when, when I was a student many years ago. It's just been republished um, uh, by Princeton University, University Press. Uh, uh, just draw your attention to that uh, because though he, Professor Tulis will be speaking on his new book, uh, he's an expert on the presidency and certainly free, feel free to ask questions uh, about uh, that matter. Uh, Abby Stasa, uh, third year PhD student uh, who does classical political theory will introduce our speaker. Abby. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, a warm welcome and thank you for being here today. Uh, we are here, as you know, to listen to Professor Jeffrey Toulis um, discuss how the Federalists opened the door to the Anti-Federalist Appropriation of the Constitution. The Anti-Federalist Appropriation is outlined in Professor Toulis's most recent book, a book co-authored with Nicole Mello entitled Legacies of Losing in American Politics. In this book, Toulis and Mello consider three key plans for restoring the South, um, to the Union was defeated, and in 1964, the presidential campaign, when, pres when Barry Goldwater's challenge to the New Deal order, was soundly defeated by Lyndon B. Johnson. Toulis and Mello seek to show how the defeated plans of the anti-federalists, President Andrew Johnson and Barry Goldwater, continued to shape the political landscape of the country. Now, our guest, Professor Jeffrey Toulis, is a professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin. His research covers American political development, the American presidency, as well as constitutional and political theory. He has published a number of books, The Presidency and the Constitutional Order, The Constitutional Presidency, The Limits of Constitutional Democracy, and of course, in 1987, The Rhetorical Presidency. Growing out of his dissertation, The Rhetorical Presidency sought to give an account of the American constitutional order it is a story of the increasing application of a popular rhetoric as a form of presidential governance and a story of the simultaneous change in common opinion that presidents should be popular leaders. Not a few, but many books and dissertation projects have taken it upon themselves to respond to the book. Four collections of essays on the book have been published and it has also been widely discussed in the public media. Uh, including the Washington Post, Newsweek, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Review of Books, just to name a few. In the years since its publication, the book has been widely lauded. And I say this without any adornment. Uh, reviewers have described the book as brilliant, perceptive, original. These are the adjectives that continue to reappear in the reviews. And a reviewer from the Critical Review described it as one of the two or three most important and perceptive works written by a political scientist in the 20th century. In the recent months, the book, in recent months, the book has reappeared in the limelight. Uh, Princeton University Press has published a new edition. 
Last year, it was awarded the American Political Science Association's Legacy Award for a Book of Lasting Impact. And if the Legacy Award is not a sufficient testament of the continued recognized impact of the book, uh, a senior fellow at Brookings last month described on Twitter um, that the 1987 book has taught him more about Donald Trump than any other single thing he has read. Uh, Professor Toulis began his academic career as a graduate student of Herbert Storing. He took his PhD from the University of Chicago. He is a recipient of a host of teaching awards, including from the University of Texas, the President's Associates Teaching Excellence Award. He has received research fellowships from the NEH, the ACLS, the Olin Foundation, Harvard Law, and the Mellon Preceptorship at Princeton. In addition to teaching at Princeton and now at the University of Texas, Professor Toulis has held visiting positions at Harvard and at your beloved Notre Dame in 1980. In 2008 and 9, he was a Lawrence S. Rockefeller Visiting Fellow at the Princeton Center for Human Values. And during the spring of 2016, he was a Darendorf Visiting Fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science. So now that he has been properly introduced, uh, let us listen to how the Federalist opened the door to the Anti-Federalist appropriation of the Constitution. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Jeffrey Toulis. Thank you very much. Uh, boy, was that a generous and fulsome uh, introduction. Let me just highlight one piece of it, which sounded kind of minor, which was this so-called visiting thing at Notre Dame. Uh, it, it was actually uh, initially supposed to be a two-year thing. And then when I got here, they said I could stay longer. And uh, unusual and unexpected circumstances brought, took me away. But it is and remains my favorite place to have ever taught. It was one year, and it was unbelievably formative. I came here with a baby and a young wife and lived a few miles down the road on this little, in this little bungalow. And uh, this place remains in our memory as an extraordinary institution, with ext mainly because of the people here. By the way, it looks very different. Uh, I, I've come back about once every decade. This, I don't know how many more there are going to be. Um, this is like the fourth one. So, um, and I never got a chance. There was a plan that I would teach this course with people that you haven't heard of that were here back then. There was a guy named Ed Gurner who taught political theory here, who was a legendary teacher nationwide. And I would just listen to him occasionally and was uh, inspired. And, the chairman when I was here was a Latin American, his name Mike Francis, and when I later became a chairman myself of a department, he was the model for me of what a chairman should be, even though I had met many other chairmen at several other places. Nobody understood what it meant to build a community and relate to people uh, like he did. And so I just want to really stress that because I came in initially here as this, I think my title was visiting instructor something like that. It, 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 that's lower on the totem pole than advanced graduate student. <laughs> and, and, I was, and, and I was treated as a full member of this community. And uh, we really, um, it really formed me. So I'm very, very proud to be back here and delighted to uh, share with you some, some thoughts about this new book. Um, I'm only going to be talking about the chapter on the Anti-Federalists, but you did a nice summary of the whole thing, which is how um, how uh, people of 
not notice the enormous significance of major losers in American political history. Um, and the three major losers that interest us are the ones that come at what have been marked as the three turning points of American political life. The founding of the country, uh, the Reconstruction, Civil War and Reconstruction, and the New Deal. And um, we found that at each of these moments, uh, and these, these, these three episodes in American political life have been marked by others as enormously significant. So those of you that know Bruce Ackerman, he calls them America's constitutional moments, three constitutional moments. The great Ted Lowy, who had a lot of influence here, by the way, a number of people like Perry Arnold and John Roos, who no longer teach here, studied with him. Ted Lowy, uh, who just died a year or two ago, um, called them America's successive republics. And that's significant because it suggests just how significant these transformational times are that they could be analogized to new regimes as in France's successive republics. Or in my uh, colleague, former colleague, Dean Burnham's lexicon, America's most important critical realignments or critical elections. And he wedded those particular three to Ackerman's notion of constitutional moments. So a whole lot of people have said, if you want to understand the major points of, turning points of American political life, those are the three major turning points. And the victors at each of those moments were so decisive that everything else uh, after needs to be understood in some sense in terms of what they won. So um, what we discovered is uh, that the losers in each of those cases were also among the biggest losers in American political life. So the, the anti-federalists that I'll be returning to very shortly lose the biggest debate of all, which is uh, whether to have the, this Constitution or whether to retain some version of the Articles of Confederation. Um, Andrew uh, Johnson, President Andrew Johnson, as you know, leaves office in disgrace, is impeached, and is nearly convicted um, over his opposition to Reconstruction, which becomes, uh, he, he opposed, as some of you know, all of the Reconstruction agenda, including the, uh, those pieces that became amendments to the Constitution of the United States. He was in favor of something called restoration rather than Reconstruction. And then, uh, of course, FDR uh, um, uh, brought us the New Deal, uh, which was so successful that even the losers in that debate uh, ended up embracing many of the things that he established. So for example, uh, it's tough to be against Social Security uh, after the New Deal. So the very high point of the New Deal uh, was uh, in the 1960s, in which the word conservative was actually a dirty word, and the word liberal was, it's okay to be a liberal in the 1960s. That's, that's been reversed to some degree after Ronald Reagan. Uh, but we argue that uh, uh, Barry Goldwater's unbelievable loss, the second biggest landslide loss in American political history, actually paved the way for um, Ronald Reagan. In important respects, they actually won over the long run. More, secondly, we show, and more interestingly, that the very same mechanisms that help account for why they lost in the first place, the reasons they lost, turn out to be the very same mechanisms that, be, that, that account for the long-term 
influence or success of their vision. Just to take the middle one for, uh, for uh, a moment, Andrew Johnson's restoration policy was, as I just mentioned, soundly defeated by uh, the Reconstruction uh, radicals in Congress and by the establishment and reinvention, you might say, of the Constitution. Uh, but it actually was the governing operative policy of the United States from about nine years after his alleged demise until the 1960s. So Reconstruction in this country didn't really happen until the 1960s. And that whole interregnum in between is actually the instantiation of the so-called loser's policy. And we show how that isn't just an ironic fact, but is a product of the mechanisms by which he, he lost. Um, now, the most complicated story is the one that has to do with the anti-federalists which is what I'm going to be spending on, uh, most of my time on today. But the reason that we tell all three of the stories is that we think that it complicates two big synoptic pictures of how to understand American politics. One of them is the story that I just alluded to, that American a story of change, how American politics changes from one constitutional moment to the next, and the significance of those changes. So one of the reasons we tell this story is to Re, to, to look again at the constitutional moments story. Um, and one of the things that we find when we do that is that the people who refer to America's successive republics or constitutional moments treat them as constitutively equivalent to each other. That is, they're each founding moments. And one of the things that we try to suggest, which is relevant to my remarks today on the anti-federalists, is the first moment is much more important than the other two, though they're all important, that the other two operate under, as it were, under the auspices of the first and redeploy and reappropriate the resources from that first one, which I'll be talking about. The second big synoptic perspective that, I, that we try to talk about is uh, the story that America has had and has been marked by a kind of hegemonic liberal tradition. This story that goes back to Tocqueville but is made uh, important in American political science by Louis Hartz has been the subject of a lot of debate, some of it here at Notre Dame and most famously in um, some important writing by Roger Smith that calls attention to alternatives to the liberal tradition that have marked American politics throughout its history, which he calls an ascriptive tradition, a tradition in which people are not thought to be equal but some people are thought to be superior to others. Um, and one of the puzzles is figuring out how that ascriptive tradition, which he documents so well, is maintained for so long and seems to reappear periodically. So one of the other payoffs of this whole story of rethinking winning and losing is to suggest that it provides some sort of an account for the sustenance of, this, of these alternatives to liberalism at the same time that liberalism isn't blown away or, or, uh, or supplanted, but in fact that the illiberal and the liberal become braided in American politics over time by virtue of the relationship between these victories at the constitutional moments and the losses at them. So the one that I'm talking about today is this first one. Um, uh, this is the Anti-Federalists, and this one is the most complicated because 
in the second two that I mentioned briefly, there's a very, very distinct strategic dimension to the uh, victory, the long-term victory of the losers. That is, the losers know that the actions they're doing are purposefully taken with some long-term objective in mind. They are, in other words, making conscious choices to uh, advance some political purpose, uh, knowing that they might be losing in the short run. Uh, in the case of the founding, the anti-federalists don't work in such a strategic way initially. Their mechanism is more complex, mechanisms there are more complicated and um, sequenced. And basically the story is this, at the beginning of the debate, the anti-federalists are caught off guard by a proposal brought by this Philadelphia Convention that had been commissioned to amend the Articles of Confederation, but um, don't amend the Articles of Confederation, but instead propose a, a completely new constitution. And not only don't they propose, not only do they propose a new constitution rather than amending the old one, but they propose a way of making that new constitution, of ratifying it, which is less arduous than it would have been to actually amend the Articles of Confederation, because it's only going to take nine of the 13 states to make this new regime, not 13 uh, altogether. And so uh, uh, the anti-federals, the people that are opposed to this, are caught off guard. And uh, they have to initially take the posture of opposing it and uh, trying to defeat it. And they really do want to defeat it. They don't want to lose defeating it in order to win something else. They want to defeat it. Uh, and in order to try to defeat it, they try to, as clearly as they can, bring out its most defining features uh, to show the citizenry just how new what is being proposed is and what the consequences are for their lives and much more importantly for the lives of future generations of, of uh, fellow citizens would be if in fact this decision is taken. And I want to pause on that for a moment because this idea of thinking about what this decision would make over the long term, what, what difference this decision would make over the long term, is actually one of the profound and fundamental agreements that the um, Federalist and uh, Anti-Federalist share. They share a notion of constitutional thinking that is sometimes foreign to us and foreign to students, foreign to citizens who live within a polity and try to interpret how it operates, as it were, from inside. From outside the polity, what they share is a vision of constitutional thinking that could be understood as this. Um, what are the fundamental commitments that are represented by this new proposed political architecture? In fact, what does it mean to even think of it as political architecture? not as a series of legal propositions. It will be a series of legal propositions too, but those are the products of its fundamental character 
as a piece of political architecture, as a design for a whole polity. That is a design for a whole polity, not just for the legal arena, but for, I've got all this stuff <laughs> hanging off of me, and I don't know. Um, I've never had this much electronics. Uh, uh, I'm apparently talking to Kazakhstan, and they're trying to talk back. Um, so uh, what are these fundamental commitments of the political architecture, and how could those be distinguished from the peripheral or ancillary commitments? Um, what are the institutional policy and cultural implications of those fundamental commitments, whatever they are, over the long term? Um, and what are the philosophic presuppositions of those fundamental commitments? Now, I'm going to, and if you take all of those three things, the commitments, the presuppositions, and their implications, you can call that a form, that you can call that constitutional thinking or a constitutional way of thinking. Um, and that is shared, that way of thinking is shared by the Federalists and Anti-Federalists. Now, I'm going to be focusing on the commitments and their uh, implications, uh, institutional, cultural, policy implications. And there, I want to suggest that not only, not only are the, uh, is this way of thinking shared by the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, but what they think on those dimensions turns out to also be shared by the Federalists and Anti-Federalists. That is, what are the fundamental commitments? And in broad, non-normative, non-evaluative terms, what is the shape, what is the look of the institutional policy and cultural implications that will follow from adopting these commitments rather than the ones that we currently have? And on that, too, the Federals and Anti-Federals have this remarkable set of agreements, so remarkable that the Anti-Federals initially state the Federalist proposed polity in some ways more clearly than the Federalists themselves do. And I want to begin this way because we normally think of the Federalists and Anti-Federalists as antagonists, and as uh, which they were. Um, and so we think that the way and what, what they thought and how they thought was arrayed against each other. And I want to suggest that that's actually largely untrue. I mean, what's true is that the Anti-Federalists didn't want the, 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 uh, this Constitution. What's also true is that the Anti-Federalists thought that there were all sorts of problems that would attend the, this architectural design that the Federalists didn't agree were, were problems. It is true that the Federalists thought that there were all sorts of benefits that would come from the adoption of this Constitution that the Anti-Federalists didn't either see or agree with. So all that's true, that those were disagreements. But those are disagreements, you might say, on the normative attractiveness of the Constitution, not on its fundamental political logic. Now, the reason I think this is important is because um, the, federal, the Anti-Federalists state the Federalist political logic so clearly uh, initially because it is so scary to the citizenry 
used to the Articles of Confederation. And that political logic includes the fact that if you do this, it's going to be a huge country, not a lot of small countries. And so everything that goes with huge is going to come with huge. That includes it's going to be an urbanized country in which agriculture will still exist, but be subsidiary and supportive of commerce and of a commercial republic. It won't be as they would have preferred and as they thought they uh, had inhabited a largely agrarian way of life supported by um, commerce, with commerce playing the secondary role. It will be a country in which the national government, the anti-federalists said, is going to be enormously strong, so strong that it would be effectively the sovereign government for everybody. It would consolidate the country as a whole, and it would diminish, if not obliterate, the existence of the states. It's going to have a very, very strong presidency with enormous executive powers, something that was unknown under the Articles of Confederation where the executive powers were an ancillary aspect of legislative power. It was going to have a judiciary with wide interpretive license to actually think through the moral implications of some of the open-ended clauses of the Constitution uh, and to wrestle with the fact that the Constitution contained the equity power, the, the power to actually think about questions like justice. And so uh, those of you that have read the Anti-Federalist Brutus will see that Brutus has a much clearer picture of the trajectory of judicial power in the United States than any of the Federalists seem to have. Um, so now what about the Federalists? The Federalists don't uh, actually disagree with any of those things, but they initially uh, are afraid to say so. The Federalists eventually come to a sophisticated rendition of every proposition and a few others that I'm going to mention in a minute that the Anti-Federalists have laid out as the future trajectory of the United States. They have, a, as you know, in Federalist 10, a sophisticated argument about why big is good, why proliferating factions is good, why not worrying about civic virtue so much is good, why a strong presidency is good, why a judiciary will have judicial review and why that's okay. They get to that. They get to that. But what, I, what we do in this chapter, and the reason the lecture today is called uh, the anti-federal appropriation, is they initially have to mollify a citizenry that is understandably freaked out by what the Federalists have just pointed out. This is a big change. Now, I want to pause to remind you of just what a, an enormous victory it was that the Federalists actually won. They had to convince people that it was okay to consider an illegal proposition. So by the terms of the Articles of Confederation, the proposal was illegal. Forrest MacDonald has usefully pointed out that they did send it back to the Continental Congress, which then agreed with them to set up these ratifying conventions 
in each of the states, which, by the way, another illegal proposition. It's not going back to the normal process, but it's setting up this whole thing, not only counting mechanism, but saying, no, no, it's not states qua state legislatures that are going to decide anything. It's a mechanism to get the people, but congregating state by state in specially organized ratifying conventions. All of this stuff is illegal by the terms of the original Articles of Confederation. McDonald's pointed out, but once the Continental Congress has said, OK, we're going to do it, it does have the sense of sort of retrospectively conveying uh, legality on what the, um, what the uh, Federals had proposed. But on the surface, at, at least, it's like, who the hell are you guys? You're proposing this incredibly illegal thing. And then you have to have a campaign in each of these 13 polities uh, to persuade them uh, to adopt this uh, uh, new constitution. Um, and the rules by which each of those, uh, those states would elect and conduct their ratifying conventions were different and actually rather complicated. So if you actually go through this stuff, as Pauline Mayer has in her wonderful book on, on, on ratification, you see that it really was an enormously complicated sort of on-the-ground political fight in which um, uh, it's hard to say, actually, all the, all the little things that helped account for this Federalist victory. For example, Pauline Muir talks about how the Federalists spent a lot of time on manipulating and capturing various newspapers and, 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 and other sorts of things that were familiar from campaigns that people do that border on uh, dirty tricks to try to get your side to win. And state by state, these were somewhat different from each other. What we try to do is, is, is sort of step back from all that and look at, over all the states, what one feature is sort of similar that helps account for this enormous uh, Federalist victory. And what we want to suggest is what helps account for it is an iterative form in which the Federalist unfolds its argument rather than laying it out straight initially. Um, uh, so that the Federalist offers first uh, a series of mollifications before it offers the uh, best defense of the proposed new arrangement. Um, and uh, so the mollifications generally go something like this. The anti-federalists say, this isn't what we're used to. And the federalists first say, yeah, it's sort of like what you have. And they say, no, it's not. And so the second phase is, well, it's a much better version. It's a better version of the one you have. It's a new kind of what you have. And they say, no, it's not. And then finally, in the third iteration on each of the contested points, the Federalists will come back and say, yeah, you're right. It's a new version, but it's a better version than what you want. It achieves purposes, maybe, that you want. But yeah, it's, 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 it really is new. These are new inventions. But it's not announced initially. And I'm going to go through and show you this in a little bit more detail. But what's the significance of that? And where does this come uh, to be a kind of appropriation? By iterating their argument, the Federalists, by moving from the more mollifying argument to the franker, sophisticated argument, 
and uh, this is the Federalist Papers itself is constructed this way, that has uh, provided resources for the anti-federalists themselves and their heirs to then appropriate the early iterations of the federalist own argument as the purported authoritative original intent or whatever you want to call it of the Constitution for the purpose of achieving through subsequent interpretation of the Constitution and the constitutional order what, what was lost in constitutional construction. So that over the course of American political history, in other words, the anti-federalists and their heirs win back in part uh, an attempt to infuse the spirit and ideas of the Articles of Confederation into the operating Constitution, having lost the Constitution itself. Um, and that's the thesis that I'm going to try to prosecute today. And the point of this is not to say the result is it obliterates the Constitution. It doesn't. It infuses it in a way in which the Constitution continues to operate not only as the Federalists wanted, but as that the Anti-Federalists predicted at the same time as it's deflected, subverted, uh, messed with, um, um, hindered in some ways, uh, by uh, an interpretation that runs at odds with what the anti-federalists themselves knew the Constitution's best understanding was. Um, so um, I'd like to do this by um, uh, starting first with the first big mollification and then talking a little bit um, about, uh, about federalism. Uh, so the, the first big mollification is, um, is that the Federalists call themselves the Federalists. I mean, I told you already, the Anti-Federalists are uh, caught off guard by this proposal that wasn't a series of amendments. But they're also pissed off. Who the hell are you to call yourself? We're the Federalists. You're the Nationalists. We're the Federalists. And not only did you get, not only did they call themselves the Federalists, but they named the opponents of the Constitution the Anti-Federalists. They named them the naysayers of their own fundamental identity. And uh, um, the Anti-Federalists never called themselves the Anti-Federalists. Uh, there was a little bit of warrant for what the Federalists did because under the Articles of Confederation, people that had been for strengthening the so-called national authority had been known as the Federalists. Um, and that's where they got the idea from. But strengthening the national aspect of the Articles of Confederation is wholly different than proposing a new regime that is essentially a nationalist regime, but calling yourself the Federalists. Why call yourself the Federalists? Precisely because it was going to be a nationalist regime. Precisely because it was a move from the Articles of Confederation to something different. Um, now, the Anti-Federalists started with that and said that you're calling yourself the Federalists. This is not a federal regime. This is a national regime. And the Federalists initially begin by saying, look, if you mean by federal, 
that it is a regime that is a confederation in which the states have all the sovereignty and just agree with each other <clears throat> to form some organizations for collective purposes, if that's the definition of federalism, yeah, we've changed. But if you understand it differently in our new uh, and more interesting way as not the delegation of authority that could be retracted from the states, if that's not federalism, if federalism instead is thought of as redefining power as some as appropriate to a national level and others as to a state level, which has come down to many of us in textbooks as what American federalism is, that's what we're proposing. Federalists do that. And the most, one of the most sophisticated uh, uh, articulations of this comes in Federalist number 39, where Madison lays out all the different ways in which you can think of this feature of the Constitution as national, and this other feature as federal, meaning states-oriented, and then some features as a combination. And if you go through that, you could color code it. You know, and if you use primary colors, you could get you know, you could get your blue and your yellows and your greens, make a whole chart of Federalist 39 if you wanted. Well, the anti-Federalist reaction to that was very smart. It was, let's actually look through the list, Madison's list here, and it turns out that it looks like it's this complicated mixture of levels of government, but all the important stuff, even though they're relatively few, are given to the national government with respect to the day-to-day -day operations of the government. And of course, the Federalists are trying to mollify by saying, well, wait a minute, we've got these things in the Constitution that protect states like equal representation in the Senate, for example, and the anti-Federalists were relentless and said, this isn't good enough. You don't really have the representation of the states, qua states in the Senate, because you won't allow the power of instruction. That's when uh, the state legislatures of a state could actually tell the senators as their representatives how to vote and how not to vote. Once you elect a senator, or even a senator that's chosen by state legislatures as they were initially, they were free to vote uh, the way that they wanted. So any Federalist pointed out that this is not, in fact, a federal, uh, this is not, in fact, a federal principle. This is a national principle. And um, then the, the, uh, the, f the Federalists continued their mollifications by saying, look, and you've heard these arguments too, the Constitution with respect to the, relation, the powers that the national government has is only enumerated powers, and if they're not enumerated, they're left to the states. And so we're limited by this list of enumerated powers. This is a famous argument that comes up today still in court cases. And why does it come up today in famous court cases? Because of the anti-federalists. Um, uh, because uh, the anti-federalist appropriation of the federalist mollification. Because the anti-federalists originally said that doesn't work because uh, not only what in fact is uh, enumerated, but they're enumerated in such a way as to imply both their expansion and powers that aren't on the list by virtue of the Necessary and Proper Clause and the Supremacy Clause. And uh, forced with these arguments, the Federalists so makes a, a, a sophisticated 
elaboration and iteration of their argument that concedes them but defends them. And so Hamilton says, yes, uh, these powers uh, are enumerated, but in fact, uh, limited government shouldn't be defined by the limitation of powers. And the reason they shouldn't be defined by the limitation of powers, as you're trying to do, is that government should always have all the power, all the power you can even imagine, necessary to accomplish uh, 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 justified purposes. So Hamilton says, the mistake here is to interpret government, limited government, as limited powers. You should interpret government as limited purposes. And, uh, um, and of course, government doesn't have all the potential purposes that one could imagine. And so we're going to limit the national government to only national purposes. And the anti-federalists uh, were, not, were not pleased with that either because they said, yeah, but you've got the good purposes. You've got the big purposes. And, uh, and Hamilton responded, you know, you're right. We do have the purposes, the big purposes. And even those purposes can't be as easily limited as it first seems because they expand over time. I mean, if you have the purpose for regulating commerce between states and the economy gets more complex, then uh, the power you have is going to expand. And most importantly, the Anti-Federalists pointed out that if there is some sort of dispute between what purposes are national and what purposes are states, and therefore what powers might be justified, the national government gets to decide. And uh, Hamilton embraced that wholeheartedly, said, yeah, you're right. The implications of that are uh, Professor Barber is here, has written a book called The Fallacies of States' Rights. There's one of its fundamental fallacies. It doesn't face up to what he calls the logic of the venue. Who gets to decide these boundary questions? Um, so M Hamilton unfolds this over time through the Federalist Papers. And uh, at one cr crucial point, he says, look, quit worrying states people because the uh, states are the national home for citizenship, and people will feel more attached to their states than they will to the national government. So even though we have all these responsibilities, the states will be a continuing sentinel and watchdog of national power because of your dispositional uh, uh, attachment to your locality, basically, to your states. But he puts in a kind of throwaway line that most people don't notice when they're reading the Federalist Papers. When he initially says this, he says, unless uh, there is evidence of superior administration of the latter, and that latter turns out to be the national government, rather than the states. So in other words, you have natural attachment to the states. That's where your natural attachment is. Unless it turns out the national government is just much better at administering things, then your attachment is going to shift from the states to the nation. Well, the Federalist Papers from 51 through the end of the Federalist Papers is an attempt to show how the national government would, in fact, be better administration than the states. So the argument of federalism is actually through an iterative 
set of movements. I wouldn't say demolished, you would say conceded and elaborated to the, to the uh, anti-federalists. Uh, and it leaves the anti-federalists and it leaves uh, uh, inquiring citizens with the, uh, the problem, well, if the states aren't a guard on the possible tyranny of this new, uh, possible tyranny of this new government, what guards do we have against the possible abuse of power by a national government that is going to be so much um, uh, more impressive and more powerful than the one that we've had. I want to add a footnote uh, to this kind, what it means to have this kind of national government uh, that I had meant to mention. In moving from federalism eventually to nationalism, Hamilton explains that all of these gestures to the um, states that you can find in the Constitution are not merely compromises designed to get a new Constitution that is essentially national. They are partly that, but they are more importantly attempts to make it a better, <coughs> excuse me, a better national government. Um, and I want to I pause here and stress what I mean by that. So the anti-federalists would have preferred a better federal government, and what they get instead is a better national government. And what I, what I mean by that is that um, it is, as the anti-federalists argued, sometimes better for localities and states to decide things than the national government. And uh, the Federalist, the Constitution, um, and Hamilton all concede that. The, the argument that would come later from Tocqueville on some of the uh, defects or problems that attend over-centralization of power and policy are recognized. What's being argued, however, is that there's a big difference between saying that the states have fundamental authority for these possible policy decisions and the proposition that in some circumstances it would be better for the states to be deciding than for the national government. So the new notion of nationalism is nationalism with an asterisk. Nationalism capable itself of saying in these circumstances, as a result of this partisan debate, we're going to decentralize power on this issue. As long as that could then be uh, uh, reversed under new circumstances or under a new partisan dispensation, that's always a national policy, even though it's administered by the states. All right? But the reason that there's a lot of state stuff in the Constitution is you might say, Hamilton would argue, to remind the national government of the intelligence of using states, localities, and other forms of decentralization as instruments of national policy. Sometimes that's a very smart thing to do. So, but if it is, if it is in fact the purpose of the national government, for example, under uh, future complicated 
circumstances like we face today in which healthcare has become a national problem and health markets and the costs of drugs and all that have to be affected from a national point of view, the, the, the issue of how to deal with that, as long as that's a national responsibility, the particular mechanisms by which you deal with that might very well be wisely chosen uh, at the state or local level. Um, so that's that's a huge and but but what that what that what that opens up the door for, however, is people to confuse the notion of smart policy and the reminder of the possibility of smart policy in the peripheral aspects of the Constitution that retain this reminder that states exist with states' rights. They're completely different things. If it's states' rights then the government doesn't have any business in the, in the enterprise. If it's not there, governments has a duty in the enterprise, to, to deal with the enterprise, but it might include, might smartly include, using the states. So that's the movement to a sophisticated nationalism as opposed to federalism. But it's still left open this question for anti-federalists, well, what about the possible abuse of power if the national government is so strong and that's why in the late 40s in the Federalist Papers, you get this transition to a discussion of separation of powers. Separation of powers essentially comes to replace federalism as the most important sort of uh, structural set of principles for the Constitution. And here, the iterative problem is slightly different. Um, here, the issue is uh, that um, that that the, the, uh, the Constitution and the Federalist defenders of it do think that um, some design principle that we've come to call separation of powers is, in fact, much more important than federalism. But they're faced initially with the proposition that what they're proposing doesn't look anything like what's been called separation of powers. So you're probably all familiar with this, where the Anti-Federalists say, well, wait a minute, what about Montesquieu? And uh, what about what we're used to in our states? And the response from the Federalist is initially, yeah, what about Montesquieu? He's got a more complicated argument than you're admitting. Montesquieu doesn't think that power is hermetically uh, divided into these components. Uh, he's got some overlap, like we've got some overlap. Um, and in the states, too. The states are not uh, hermetically and carefully defined power by, the, by, by its nature and defined uh, cleanly to different institutions. But there is some blending of power uh, like you're upset about in our Constitution. Because the Anti-Federalists were saying, this thing is a mess. We can't really find a separation of powers principle here. Um, so the first iterative defense is to say, yeah, well, you guys got a mess too, and Montesquieu's got a little bit of mess. But then the second iteration is actually to concede the anti-federalist point. The second iteration is to say, you know, you're sort of right that the state governments are closer to what we've described as your misunderstanding of Montesquieu than what we're proposing. For example, the state governments have within their constitutions separation of powers principles written out. Our Constitution doesn't have a clause that says you can't, that one branch can't 
exercise power that's been assigned to another branch. Um, state government, state constitutions, some of them had that principle in it. By the way, that's kind of interesting. You've got a lot of judges today who say, well, where do you get this that's not written in the Constitution, you know, implied rights and things like that? Well, federalism's not written in the Constitution, and separation of powers isn't written in the Constitution. You get it presumably by some sort of inference. Now, um, so our Constitution does not have an explicit separation of powers clause, but more importantly, it is, rests on what turns out to be a critique or criticism of these state constitutions that did come closer to a model of separation of powers understood as defining power by its nature and then constructing institutions well to house those powers. Uh, in our Constitution, there is a fundamental shift uh, in which uh, um, we um, privilege the structures, the institutions first, and make the powers the secondary story. How did that happen? Well, um, in Federalist 37, some of you may remember, um, uh, I gotta find my quote here for you. Um, Madison says this, when we pass from the works of nature in which all the delineations are perfectly accurate and appear to be otherwise only from the imperfection of the eye which surveys them to the institutions of man in which the obscurity arises as well from the object itself as from the organ by which it's contemplated, we must perceive the necessity of moderating still further our expectations and hopes for the efforts of human sagacity. Experience has instructed us that no skill in the science of government has yet been able to discriminate and define with sufficient certainty its three great provinces, the legislative, executive, and judiciary, or even the privileges and powers of the different legislative branches. Questions daily occur in the course of practice which prove the obscurity which reigns in these subjects and which puzzle the greatest adepts in political science. So, Madison is pointing there to a kind of fundamental indeterminacy in the very ability to define legislative, executive, and judicial power, certainly at their boundaries. That doesn't mean you can't say anything about how they might be different, but the notion that you can cleanly and uh, uh, clearly distinguish them is a huge problem. And so what he does is what he does with every huge problem that they discuss in the Federalist Papers. He turns the problem into a solution. You might remember in Federalist 10, the problem is faction. The old solution is to get rid of factions. The new solution is to proliferate. Let's make more of them. Solutions of the factions, let's have more of them. Uh, you remember from also Federalist 10, big was a problem. Democracies historically had not been able to survive on a big scale. There have been lots of political science books on the problem of size and democracy. And the solution was go big as a solution combined with faction. So here's the same strategy. Uh, the problem is the contestability of the distinction between executive, legislative, and judicial power. Which one is which? Solution, let's make contest itself up a part of the solution to the boundary question. So um, the dividing of powers 
as well as the particular structural design of the President and Congress in particular, but also the court, but especially President and Congress, are designed to induce uh, contestation, not just to protect turf, but to better advance the purposes by, uh, of the Constitution itself by having contests over the boundaries of these respective powers. So there's a shift here from separation of powers understood as defining of power, building institutions, structures, to a theory of structures uh, in which powers are a subsidiary component. And I'll br briefly suggest how that works. If, uh, if you imagine that we in, in ancient times had uh, uh, the best governments were often thought to be mixed governments, where you have a portion of the government being aristocratic, a portion monarchic, a portion democratic, classic mixed democracy, mixed government. Um, in the United States, we begin with the proposition that uh, we're not going to have a mixed government, uh, both because of the attractiveness of democracy itself as an ideal and also because of the lack of the social prerequisites for the class bases for mixed regimes. So instead, you could think instead of separation of powers, what's being invented is something that could be called mixed democracy. Take the desiderata of democracy. Uh, we want to represent popular will. We want to protect rights. And we want the country secure, which is a desiderata of all governments, not just democratic governments, and is discussed most articulately in Federalist 70 when the anti-federalists say an energetic executive is incompatible with the genius of Republican government. The response is that the anti-federalists better hope that that's wrong, because any government requires executive energy, any, executive, any government requires security. So if security, rights, popular will are all desiderata, um, how do we productively uh, build a regime around those desirable qualities? And so the new thing that replaces separation of powers, I'll just call it mixed democracy, it doesn't have a name. We call it separations but it, uh, powers, but we infuse separation of powers with this completely new meaning, is to devise institutions structurally so that they have different dispositional states and will exercise power in contest with each other so as to vindicate different perspectives on the same democratic project. Another way to think about this is think about any issue before it's even arisen. Say 50 years ago, the issue of climate change. We haven't had a term for it. We just know that the environment is obviously an issue, and maybe in the future it'll be a big problem. What kinds of arguments do we want people to be having about that before we've actually even gotten into the issue? That's what looking forward as a founder is, makes you do. You have to be planning for issues that haven't come up yet. And one answer to that would be, well, we would want somebody to worry about what the people want and what the trade-offs are for the people of other things they want, but we would also want to worry about the rights that might be affected, and we would want to worry about the security of the country. Um, how can we make sure that all those kinds of arguments are at the table 
when the issue arises. And an answer to that is, well, we will build institutions that concern themselves with all three, but are actually biased in favor of one. So that uh, by having these institutions be brought into conflict with each other, we're also making sure that the arguments that are represented by that perspective are brought to bear. Uh, one of the easiest ways to see this is to think about when President, former President Obama was senator, he had a number of views on foreign policy that were almost opposite of what he adopted as president. This is not uncommon. And the difference is he was senator and then he was president. And from those different institutional perspectives on the same kind of issue, he had a different set of priorities or concerns. And as long as the Congress and the president are brought to bear together on the issue, you know in advance that those different kinds of concerns have to be taken into account by the relevant uh, decision makers. So um, separation of powers then uh, is retained as a name, but is infused with this entirely new meaning, which I've just in this truncated way and this very brief way called for you mixed democracy. Federalism is retained as a name for a principle, but in fact we've got nationalism with an asterisk as a, as a real result. Now, uh, at the origins of this, what the anti-federalists thought is we were getting nationalism and we were getting something that isn't separation of powers and what the federalists thought were we getting these new sophisticated things. But basically, as I said before, they both were agreeing on what we were getting. And yet, when the Constitution was um, adopted, uh, people were surprised at how fast the anti-federalist signed on to it and legitimized it. There were not a whole lot of talk in 1790 about a rigged election and that kind of stuff. They were all right there. Uh, and yet they very, very quickly shifted to a strategy of interpreting this thing that had been adopted in a way that would bring it back to what they had lost. They very quickly started, in effect, quoting the early iterations of the Federalist against its sophisticated self. And this has occurred all the way down to uh, this day. And I'll end with two observations about that. Uh, the first is an illustration of how this kind of perverted reappropriation works. And a second is, uh, uh, and a second I want to say something about how the result is not the subversion of the Constitution, but the braiding of the political logic of the Constitution with the continuing influence of the anti-federalists. First of all, as, uh, as an example of this kind of appropriation, uh, lamenting the 2012 Supreme Court ruling that upheld the mandate uh, for individuals to purchase health insurance, Obamacare, everybody know that court case? Uh, Peggy Noonan built a Wall Street Journal column around this key quotation from the dissenting opinion that was written by Scalia, included, signed on by Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito. And here's, the, here's the quote that most impressed her and that Scalia was proud of. Quote, if Congress can reach out and command even those furthest removed from an interstate market to participate in the market, 
then the Commerce Clause becomes a font of unlimited power, or in Hamilton's words, quote, quote in, in the quote, the hideous monster whose devouring jaws spare neither, neither sex nor age nor high nor low nor sacred nor profane. The hideous monster. That last piece, that quote, are words from Federalist 33, and they do, in fact, capture well the dissenting justice's understanding of the unconstitutionality of the individual mandate. And moreover, because Chief Justice Roberts, in his majority opinion, agreed with the dissenters that the Commerce Clause didn't justify the individual mandate, and he found power for it in the Taxation Clause, some of you may remember, this piece of Roberts' opinion is actually a majority for a whole new understanding of the Commerce Clause, radically new understanding of the Commerce Clause, that arguably even um, uh, upends uh, um, McCulloch v. Maryland. So this is a big deal. This, this, concurrent, this is actually a, concur um, a concurrence with what is now Supreme Court doctrine regarding the meaning of the Commerce Clause. And uh, uh, so the, the quotation marks a kind of dramatic change in the post-New Deal political order, signaling a new legal skepticism about the reach of national power to regulate commerce. The justices don't seem to realize, however, <clears throat> that Hamilton didn't agree with the words that they quoted so approvingly. Hamilton's is clear those sentiments are there, is, aren't his. They were the exaggerated, this is Hamilton saying, quote, they were the exaggerated colors of misrepresentation advanced by virulent and petulant anti-federalists. And Hamilton actually devotes Federalist number 33 to showing why they were wrong. Moreover, Hamilton wasn't actually discussing the Commerce Clause, he was actually discussing the Taxation Clause that turned out to be the basis for uh, the opinion. This misquotation of the Federalists in one of the most important Supreme Court cases of our time is stunning and deserves derision uh, as colorful as those that Justice Scalia wielded so inaccurately. Uh, uh, but we think it's more interesting as an example of this kind of extraordinary uh, appropriation. Do I have a couple minutes? I see you hovering. Just, just maybe one minute. All right. Um, well, let me just say that if you look, if you look at, um, if, if, if you look at uh, something like uh, the debate over uh, this same thing, the political debate over Medicare, you see the hybrid nature of the Federalist victory and the anti-federal appropriation. Because the same people who often uh, objected to Obamacare objected to it in part because it was going to wreck Medicare. Medicare had been opposed by the same people that are opposed to Obamacare. How did that happen? It happened because of what Hamilton had described as the long-term significance of the administration of the national state, such that people came to regard uh, Medicare as uh, legitimate, evidencing the political logic of the Constitution at the very same time that anti-federal appropriations of early Federalist rhetoric allow people to attempt to subvert it. Thank you. I know many of you have class at 12.30, so if you need to leave, please go ahead and, and do so. And for those who are 
uh, free to stay. We can uh, have a bit of a conversation. So we'll let those who need to go go. And, all right. Yeah. I went too long then, huh? No, no, uh, it was good. No, I'm going to pick a bone with you later. Pick, pick all Federalist the bones you want. never says a multiplicity of factions. Multiplicity of interests. Those are different. Big differences. Uh, well, it, 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 interests are interests are aggregated as factions. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Big difference. Um, uh, a faction. Faction, a faction is by, by definition unjust, and interest is not. So not uh, all interests. Uh, you can well, have factious interests. Well, not all interests are factions. Well, the question, the, 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 def, the definition of faction has always been perplexing because it's a it's always been a question of whether. Factions are only the ones that are unjust, yes. or whether factions are by nature unjust. No, only no, no, no. It's, that's are it's, it's well, that's, that's a just that's no, that's a disputable thing. Whether whether interests are by virtue, interests are always a faction yeah. because they're always a part. No, no, that's interests are always a part. That's that's interests are always a part of the whole. Yes. So so but, but, a part of the whole could always by by nature never be fully it. just. So, uh, no, I don't think, I don't think well, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I understand yeah, what you're yeah. saying. <laughs> okay. So we're just having an argument about Federalist in here, trying to explain how um, Madison never calls for a multiplicity of factions, only a multiplicity of interests. But, but uh, we can continue in a minute. So uh, questions. Let's, um, uh, we can start with uh, any students, if any students have a question. Please. Should I get the mic? Yeah, why don't you just get the mic? Thanks for the talk. Uh, this is a really fascinating book and thesis. Uh, I, I was curious if you just might say some words about uh, McCulloch v. Maryland um, and how um, that court case reflects in whatever way sort of the abiding legacy of the anti-thoroughists, as you mentioned. No, no, I didn't mean that the court case affected the body. Oh, I know, I know. I, you didn't talk about it. I'm, I'm curious. I don't think, I, I think the McCulloch v. Maryland is a kind of, is a federalist a federalist accomplishment, you might say. So, no, I when I referred to it was it was the possibility that this Obamacare case might might go against McCulloch v. Maryland that reflected the anti-federalists. Sure, I'm just curious about McCulloch itself. Just, what do you want to know? Uh, if uh, just to, to me, that's always been sort of a. Uh, I don't know, a problematic case, and I'm just curious how that fits into your story about the... Can I, can I generalize the question? Because it's yeah. similar to one I have. Where does John Marshall fit in yeah. this story? Exactly. Um, well, I think Marshall's a good example. Marshall is a Federalist, and he continues... I mean, I'm not a Marshall expert, but what's interesting about Marshall is that he's, he's, he's obviously known, as was later Story, as very articulate... Uh, proponents of a nationalist understanding, but he also is cautious and somewhat iterative in the way that he lays that argument out, which pays some homage to the way that the Federalists made their case, even though the Constitution is already established. And so those iterations themselves have also been exploited by others who have sometimes gone back and said, well, you know, Marshall didn't exactly say this and Marshall didn't say that. Um, so I think that there is some replication of this issue of iteration in Marshall. Uh, I haven't studied him the way I've studied the uh, Federalists, so I can't 
uh, do it for you as well. But I think that that's a promising thing, actually. That would be a promising paper. Baron versus uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Baron v. Baltimore might support yeah. thesis, yeah. right? Yeah. The non-applicability of the Bill of Rights to the states. Yeah, I do want to say, so we started a discussion with ourselves here about Federalist 10, and so I do want to uh, I do want to consider that. The issue that Philip raised was that I shouldn't confuse factions with, with interests. Federalist 10 is, is really important and really interesting for this reason. Uh, as you know, the beginning of Federalist 10 says, look, there are these causes of faction, and so uh, we can't get rid of those. Uh, we can't deal with those, so we're going to concentrate on the effects of faction. And we're going to do that by representation and size. Now, that alone, by the way, suggests something of an encouragement of factions. But I want to put that to the side because I think something much more important is going on here, which is the two causes of faction that supposedly can't work are um, uh, taking away liberty, which is thought to be worse than the disease, or giving to everyone the same opinions, interests, and passions, which is described as being as impracticable as the first one would be unwise to do. So it suggests, well, maybe it would be even wise, but it's, hard. it's, it's impractical. He does not say it's impossible. And if you read the Federalist Papers as a whole, what he does is actually a version of the second thing that he says he's not going to do. because. Uh, this paper is lifted, by the way, it would probably have caused him to get kicked out of Princeton if they had checked, because it's plagiarized from Hume. But he doesn't actually replicate everything in Hume. Hume makes the central story for him of the problem of faction, being the ones that Madison talks about very briefly uh, when he talks about religion. Re factions based on really divisive forms of opinion and leading to religious warfare. And then he goes on to say, but the most common and durable source of faction are ones based on property. So what's interesting that's happening here is he wants to get us to stop thinking of the most serious problem of faction as the most serious problem and to take the most common source of, of faction, property, as if it were the most serious problem of faction. So he shifts our entire attention to that that's where Martin Diamond and others then start to reflect on the presuppositions about the kind of economy that this implies. And what has happened is he's actually, if he succeeds in doing this, by getting us to think differently about the problem of faction, of what the problem itself is, that becomes part of the solution to the problem of faction, which is to say the giving of us of certain opinions becomes absolutely essential to the solution that, that factions uh, opposed. Um, and so I do think that it, uh, I, I do think that factions uh, persist in the form of interests. Uh, it's true that they're transformed and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Hi, thanks for your talk. Yeah. Um, my question is um, if you could speak a little bit about. Um, how people who are interpreting the Constitution should read the Federalist Papers. I mean, it seems like your thesis further complicates reading the Federalist Papers to understand the Constitution because it has all these you know, uh, iterations and responses. Um, and then I, I guess I'll, I can also think of um, you know places in that debate. I mean, we referred to um, um, 
McCullough versus Maryland, where it seems like Hamilton's uh, interpretation of necessary and proper as explained in the Federalist Papers is not the interpretation that uh, gets adopted later. Or I can think of the uh, uh, sovereign immunity debates about whether we can sue states. <laughs> in uh, the uh, ratifying conventions, you know, the Federalists were, were, I guess, doing a lot of things to kind of allay anti-Federalist fears that maybe later they kind of went back on and said, no, no, we didn't really mean that. Um, so anyway, I guess the general question is, yeah, how should, how should someone trying to understand the original understanding of the Constitution? <clears throat> so the story I tell elides uh, the distinction between the mass of people that were the Federalists and Anti-Federalists and the text that we look at. And so I want to say a word about that because we follow Storing's admonition here, which is to look at the smartest versions of thought on both sides. And the smartest is defined as people that see farthest and best. Now, the people that see farthest and best um, had some historical advantages over us but they don't have philosophic advantages over us. What I mean by that is that, in principle, anybody should be able to come up with the best theory of what the Constitution means, irrespective of what the original intentions were, or the original founders thought. Having been the actual makers of it, having had a broader education, having thought about a lot of things that we don't think of, um, it just turns out, and having been unusually smart conglomeration of people, it just turns out that some of these people really were insightful, okay? And so it is the, it's those insights that turn out to be exploitive uh, for us, uh, of somebody who wants to understand the Constitution, not a matter of actually surveying what most people thought. So, for example, it turns out that you know, there were an awful lot of different people on both sides of this question that called themselves Federalists and Anti-Federalists. And they had all sorts of different objections and stuff. For our purposes, we say if you, you had a binary choice, vote for the thing or not. If you were f voting for it, whatever your reservations, you were a Federalist. And if you were not, you were an Anti-Federalist. But then within that mass of people, we say, well, which ones were the smartest of those and, and it turns out they were actually in dialogue. So um, Federalist Papers doesn't, refer, doesn't dialogue in effect with all the anti-Federalist writings, but you can actually see a dialogue with Brutus, the Federal Farmer, and a couple of others. So we focus on those. And I don't think it really changes anything about what I would say that you should be doing with the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers should always be uh, read with a view to seeing whether or not they provide a smart account of uh, what you're trying to understand or not, but not be looked to as a form of authority just by virtue of it being the Federalist Papers. The other point I'd like to make, though, about the Federalist Papers that I think is uh, worth making on your question is the most instructive thing that I think a student and I have gotten out of the Federalist Papers is that it's thought by most, many people, to be among the most profound accounts of the Constitution. And yet, the feature, the, the papers that offer those accounts don't actually mention clauses of the Constitution. So, Federalist 10 became this big thing, Federalist 51, big, right? So, let that sink in a little bit. 
that the Federalist Papers is not a, even though there are other papers that do talk about the clauses and they're worth reading and all that, the Federalist Papers as a whole is not what one would call a clause-bound interpretation. It also, that's point one. Point two is the Federalist Papers sometimes itself refers to what must have been the intention of the drafters. But that never refers to what must be an historically discernible state of mind of anybody. It's rather a hypothetical proposition that if there's, these things are all in, in the same document, and if they're meant to be coherent with one another, what would a hypothetical mind supply to account for that coherence. And that's, a, that's interpreted to be the drafter. It's an imaginary drafter. It's not some real person. And so you put those two things together, and the Federalist Papers teaches you not to think about original intention the way that people who invoke in original intention think about it. <laughs> well, let's wait for the microphone so you can, uh, yeah, so we can pick up your voice. I think the answer to this is is in your new book, uh, but I'm not there yet. Right. And so, uh, as the overview was given uh, by you at the start, uh, building on the young lady who introduced you, you you commented that the. Uh, Constitutional moments two and three uh -huh. didn't explore in detail. Right. That they were differentiated from constitutional moment one because the anti-federalists really wanted to win. And are, are you suggesting that the resistors to uh, Reconstruction and the Goldwater conservatives did not want to win? Uh, it uh, when I say win, I mean win in the immediate contest. So, uh, of course, the resistors to Reconstruction wanted to win, but Andrew Johnson intentionally adopted positions that, uh, let me put it this way, Andrew Johnson had multiple opportunities to get a really different form of Reconstruction that came a lot closer to what he wanted. Lots of opportunities, uh, lots of hands reaching out, lots of offers of compromise, which he repeatedly rejected, knowing that his restoration agenda would be defeated and the more radical thing of what he wanted would actually be adopted at that moment. And uh, this was in an effort to get what he wanted, but not in that legislation over the long term. So he was willing to sacrifice all sorts of things in the moment. Uh, in the case of Goldwater, um, he was, uh, uh, there was always some question about whether he had a viable chance of winning the election, but there was a, there was a, a lot of possibility that he could have come a lot closer and in some view been a titular leader of the party and had other benefits and plausibly won, because who knows what's gonna come in a, in, in, a, in a campaign. So his campaign staff was always giving him advice like they do other candidates of what to do to make yourself more appealing. For example, to refer to elements of his biography that were appealing, which he refused to do. And he, he wouldn't do it because he said, look, what 
is it what is at issue here is not how many votes I the integrity of the movement that I'm trying to get. And so if I if I can get that movement going by losing, uh, that's what's important to me rather than winning but diluting the movement. I I don't want to be Rockefeller or or Chuck Percy or I, I I want this new thing. And so that's what I meant by willing to uh, to lose in order to win in the long run. They want to win, but they see the difference between the short term and the long term. Um, and so from the beginning, they have this strategic mindset of trying to figure out what that long term situation is, whereas the anti-federalists don't start thinking about, you know, in the long term, we're going to appropriate this federalist victory. That's all I meant was they thought we're going to defeat it. And they came damn close to defeating it, by the way. I mean, it's only in retrospect that we think that it wasn't close. It was very close, uh, starting with Massachusetts, because New York and, and Virginia were really up for grabs. And one could easily have seen a scenario in which they might have been able to get nine states, but the wrong states. And what would that have looked like if New York and Virginia, which were very close votes even at the end. So the, the anti-federalists were really focused on defeating that, getting that vote. And all I was saying about the other two was, Time and time again, Johnson was thinking, yeah, I know I'm going to be overruled in this veto. Yeah, I know I'm going to lose this vote, but I'm not changing my view, even though if changing it a little bit, I could, I could win. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Well, uh, please join me in uh, thanking Professor Tulis. Thank you. Thank you.